0: Melissa Abbott here, and I'm Tamara Barnett, and we are two food analysts, food nerds, food consultants. Uh, We are obsessed with all things food, and if you know anything about the Hartman Group, you know that that is really where our expertise is. Uh, We're coming to you to talk a little bit more about everything that's going on in the food business, uh, from a consumer standpoint, retail, all things related to food. And uh, this is the first of many different conversations that myself, Melissa, and others will be having uh, in terms of talking about food and what's happening in the industry. How's it going, Melissa? It's
1: very good, Tamara. I am We've worked together for many years, but we so seldom get the opportunity to sit down and just kind of like essentially chew the fat, if you will. Yeah. And talk about what's going on in the food industry, what's happening with consumers, and really what's happening with trends, too. Um, So I would love to get your opinion, because I have my thoughts on what is happening in the meal kit space these days, because um, there was an article out recently about um, the death rattle of meal order meal kits. And while that's been a hot topic for the last couple of years, a lot of investment in that space, what what do you think's going on there?
0: Yeah. Well, if I had the answers, I think I'd be a very rich woman. <laughs> yep. But I do have to say, um, I think there are a lot of different things going on. I think one is certainly a lot of disruption that we're seeing in terms of consumers' eating patterns and how what we think of as a traditional dinner is coming to the plate every evening. And I think retailers um, realize that. And so I think the meal kit has been a way to try to respond to the changing needs and patterns that folks have when it comes to preparing meals. But the reality is that the meal kit, as perhaps it was once originally envisioned, just isn't quite the widget that mm-hmm. is sort of the, the perfect solve for all of that. And so um, I think part of it you know, has been In sort of the meal kit itself, and this Mm -hmm. idea of sort of subscribing to this menu that you're going to plan ahead of you know days or weeks in advance, when the reality is is that we eat much more spontaneously. Um, So I think that's been part of the shortcomings of meal kits. I think there's been a lot of issues with even just the format in which it comes to folks. Um, There's been a lot of conveniences, but also some hiccups with that as well. So without me you know going on and on about you know some of the shortcomings of meal kits, I think it has started in a really good place. And I think there's still a lot of great opportunity for retailers and manufacturers to intersect together and figure out how to respond to the changing demands that consumers have around meals, particularly dinner meals, but potentially other ones as well. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I agree with you on all of that. And I would even add that uh, the idea that meal kits today, compared to where they were when they first came out, and there was so much excitement generated around them. And when we were out doing a lot of consumer interviews, I found that a lot of consumers who didn't do a lot of cooking themselves, or they had like a couple of things that they knew how to make really well, it helped them gain a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. There was one consumer who said, I didn't even know how to roast broccoli. I know how to roast broccoli. Like on a cookie sheet now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are really what would seem to those of us in the food industry that seem somewhat like basic just things like roasted broccoli, or making a salad dress, making your own vinaigrette that has really uh, empowered the consumer in many ways. So I think that we've gotten a lot from meal kits, but to your point about the fact that uh, they just really don't fit with modern food culture and how we're eating today. Mm-hmm. Um, how? But the lesson now is how do we take those really positive benefits of taking consumers on a journey where you know we, we want to cook more, we have aspirations to cook more as American consumers, uh, to be able to nourish ourselves and our families a- in a way where we feel like we're really participating. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that uh, you have to plan f- so far ahead is just not how the American consumer thinks today. Yeah. So we really do have to rethink and reimagine what this whole idea of what meal kits looks like, mm-hmm. um, because it's just not, as we said, it's just not how consumers think, how they shop. Um, and so we have seen it kind of move into the retail space where you can go in and say, okay, there's a, you know, a Few meal kits on offer today. A couple of different retailers have it: Publix and, and Kroger, Whole Foods, um, some smaller retailers around us in the Seattle area, such as Metropolitan Market and PCC, uh, New Seasons. They've all done a really interesting job of the things that are on offer. Uh, very on point, um, chef-driven types of things. Uh, different meals uh, from you know seafood-based, uh, you know fish tacos, all, all kinds of interesting things. Uh, Cassoulets. But you still have to go in with the intention of, I'm going in to get a meal kit. Okay. So there has to be a little bit more conversation with the consumer about what's on offer. So we're in a sort of interest the boat's a little rocky right now when mm-hmm. it comes to what the next steps are for meal kits. In my opinion, um, if I were a betting woman, <laughs> which I'm not, um, I, I wish I were. Um, I, I think it has more to do with this interesting idea of how consumers are dabbling in different ways of eating all the time, whether it's, you know, right now there's a lot of interest in keto, um, you know, which is basically just another rendition of low-carb for many consumers. Paleo, um, you know, trying out vegan and uh, flexitarianism. Um, even really obscure things like FODMAPs might even be something that consumers who don't know how to eat f- eat that way and they feel really overwhelmed by shopping for that kind of stuff Um, I think that there can be a lot of support in that space to help consumers kind of
0: bridge that gap Yeah. I would totally agree, not to cut you off, but yeah, I think Please that's a, yeah. that's really like one of the exciting things I think that meal kits have begun to tap into and that I think there could continue to be more, um, you know, uh, energy around is just providing this introduction to these various eating styles and dietary approaches where people still have a pretty big knowledge gap, um, both in the, the eating approach itself or maybe they've only, you know, they've read a book, you know, they read Dave Asprey's book or something, but they really don't know how to get to that next hurdle furthermore, perhaps their cooking skills are already underdeveloped. And so meal kits have sort of been this beacon to both give them the kinds of ingredients and recipes and resources for accommodating those kind of eating approaches that they once didn't. And so I think that's been one of the real, you know, bright spots in it. Um, Then the question is, how do you kind of take all of those tools and maybe disaggregate them and make them a little bit more flexible and personal so that people can get that kind of support that they need, but maybe it's not in a box that gets delivered or a box that you pick up from the grocery store, um, you know, once a week or twice a week or whatever it might be. I love that
1: idea because it makes me think about all of the the consumers' homes that I've been in over the years and how no one even in the home eats the same way anymore. Right. I mean, it's, it's really unusual. There are times when everyone eats the same thing at dinner, but by and large, it, it is a rare, it's a rare occasion. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing too, is that consumers are, there's less of that, you know, meat at the center of the plate and it's more about compartmentalizing. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, the garanimals. I don't know, you're, a, mm-hmm. you're a bit younger than me, but the how idea young of like, am I, <laughs> Melissa, how young how
0: am I? Am I? <laughs> <laughs>
1: this idea of like a kit, like where you could mix yeah. and match, right? Yeah. And that's how we're eating a lot today where it's like you know you think about how much protein I had earlier in the day did I eat enough vegetables do I need another serving of greens so you might want to double up on your on your you know your kale or your broccoli or Brussels sprouts and kind of back off on the starchier stuff at dinner time, because it, whatever you happen to have eaten at lunchtime. So, this is how consumers are kind of navigating the
0: space in their minds mm-hmm. um, when it comes to, you know, what do I eat for dinner? Absolutely. It's a much more modular approach to how people are thinking about meals. And I think that's where there's a lot more opportunity for retail because I think they have kind of the infrastructure or just kind of the physical space to be able to be much more dynamic in terms of how they respond to that desire for modularity. But perhaps there's a unique opportunity where, you know, the retail and the meal kit du jour or whatever form a unique partnership where it's less about again these boxed sort of components and it's more about maybe a destination center where you know all of these modular approaches can be put together because the reality is that people are still having that conversation at five o'clock every day what am I gonna have for dinner chances are at some point the retailer will be a part of uh, that destination on the way to home or wherever they're going next but what they encounter in that space as the meal kit destination might look radically different. So I don't know if that's the end, you know, to to our conversation on this particular topic now or if you have other thoughts, but certainly some interesting, you know, opportunities in the space, despite that article, you know, that we might have read about the death knell. Maybe it's not the death knell. Maybe it's just a Mm reimagination of what it might mean and some different sort of expectations on profitability and scale. You know, I mean, we were all waiting for the next kind of billion dollar company. And so maybe it's about a little bit of a reevaluation of the expectations that we might have for what that means, given all the eating approaches, you know, that are burgeoning out there, maybe one meal can't meal kit can't capture 500 different diets that people are interested in and looking for. So maybe I'm not ready to call it yet on meal kits, but maybe this, the first version, you know, the, you know, the first version of meal kits, uh, we're ready to perhaps put out to pasture, but still, I think a lot more interesting things to come.
1: Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with you is that it's just a a matter of rethinking this notion, which kind of makes me think, too. um, I think about the microbiome an awful lot (laughs) um, and uh, which has its uh, its tentacles into the idea of meal kits in some realm um, in just how consumers are thinking about digestion and inflammation um, just how, how they feel on an yeah. average day and how food, there's, there's a greater conversation as I kind of move us into the next topic mm-hmm. um, with this idea of how we feel in our bodies and how food is making us feel. We're, for many years, uh, the American consumer, by and large, overwhelmingly, we're, we've been somewhat divorced from this idea of how food makes us feel. It was this thing that we ate, and it was either tasty or it wasn't tasty, or it was health food, and it didn't taste good, but you did it anyway. That's changing. That mm-hmm. whole landscape is entirely changing as consumers today really start to have a better understanding of their emotional wellness when it comes to the f- how food performs for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this could be indulgent food too. It doesn't even mean that it has to be, you know, you're having your avocado toast and it makes you feel this way. That's not necessarily w- what I'm getting at. It's this idea of like, when I do indulge, you know, how does it feed my soul? And what, mm-hmm. w- you know, w- what's happening in that space? And how do I, f- how does it make me feel? How, how do I sleep then afterwards? Words and that kind of thing. Um, And we're seeing a lot of movement in certain ingredients in this space. You know, of course, there's fats, which I know I'm looking forward to our next time to uh, sit down and talk for our next podcast, because I really want to get into the topic of fats with you, um, because I know we have both have a lot to say on that. But when we think about adding, you know, these ingredients, botanicals, things like CBD, which literally you cannot, you know, be talking about anything in the food and beverage industry, even pet food these days without talking about, you know, what's happening with cannabis and CBD. Mm -hmm. Um, Even yesterday I heard about how Martha Stewart has even gotten involved.
0: Well, you know, she has a collaboration with Snoop Dogg. So, you know, perhaps it's the next evolution. It makes sense.
1: <laughs> it makes it a sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I know she's a dog lover, so there's all of these these things that make sense for and who wouldn't trust Martha's suggestion? Who wouldn't? Very wholesome. <laughs> Except for the prison thing, yeah, yeah. Sidetrack, side note, side, side note on the prison thing. You <laughs> obviously learned a lot there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's really interesting because Forbes was uh, recently put out an article about how Starbucks just might be the first. Big chain to launch cannabis-infused drinks, Mm -hmm. and so it seems like analysts are really thinking this could be the thing to kind of you know light the match, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. what do you you know? You've been talking to a lot of consumers lately about this topic and tangentially related ones. What
0: do you think? Yeah. Well, I think really CBD is like the wild, wild west of. Food and beverage, Uh, and I think um, you know the opportunities are endless. I'm all for you know Starbucks entering in this space. I think certainly there's a lot of regulatory issues and things, and so you know a lot of hurdles and questions that still remain. But I think clearly there is this demand you know, on the part of consumers, and to your point, not just because it's this ingredient du jour, right, there'll always be these sort of ingredients du jour that come in and out of food culture and that have a lot of interest, but because it's tapping in, I think, to some kind of deeper-rooted um, drives that we have, I think, in terms of thinking about kind of microbiome, emotional wellness, the connection between microbiome and emotional wellness, and sort of CBDs, sort of um, uh, functional kind of properties that talk to that, um, sort of just this interest in and in kind of play and exploration and CBD kind of taps into that so you know I think there's just really a lot of upside and a lot of unique opportunity and I think it's really interesting that Starbucks despite being this you know you know huge multinational company is being one of the first to really pioneer you know kind of in this space and we certainly know that they're trying to do interesting things with their own kind of branded things and why not you know CBD they're already peddling one drug of choice, you know, <laughs> why not another one? Don't, <laughs> so, don't, don't take my coffee away. That's sorry. right. No, we can <laughs> add some CBD to that, and, uh, you know, it's all the better. So, no, I think it's just really interesting, and I think, um, you know, from – Two, also the, the, the intersection of kind of food service, you know, joy and um, indulgence, but then also the medicinal properties. I think it's this unique kind of touch point for all three of those things to come together. So, yeah, I'm just fascinated to, to see. What's your favorite CBD product, Melissa? Um, well, I don't know that I have a favorite one because I'm
1: still sort of trying to figure out what the landscape is all about. Yeah. But I will say that I do give one to my pet. Okay. My dog for his anxiety. Okay. And that's my litmus test because I know he doesn't have any, like, subjective feelings about, you know, brands <laughs> right. and marketing. Um, so I kind of know what works for him and it helps uh, – helps makes car rides a lot easier. Let's right. put that. So I do know that they're – like, Charlotte's Web seems to be a really yeah. good one and one that, that seems to work with a lot of kids. Um And I just think it's fascinating, too, how little we know about the difference between CBD and THC. Like Mm -hmm. we're all as a as a culture who, uh, you know, we we really do understand so much about the ingredients that are in our foods this uh, dearth of knowledge in this space is really kind of interesting because you think about like, oh, well, I, a lot we still hear a lot of very knowledgeable, people, people, knowledgeable excuse me people talk about how it's going to make me high. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that CBD is not actually going to make them high. And how could Starbucks with, you know, can you actually give it to a truck driver who's going to go off and hit? Well, it really doesn't matter because mm-hmm. CBD isn't, going to have any psychoactive properties. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's at the very nascent stage of our knowledge about like what, kind of like alcohol where you know like, okay, you're not going to, you know, drink a couple of shots and then go off and do something, and that would be ludicrous. Whereas, you know, if you had a glass of wine but then you were to sit down and, and you know, write a paper or something like that, that could actually be something that could help but not right. in, a, in a negative way. Right, right. So, so there's a lot of like personal kind of, you know, trial and error here. And that's where I think it's going to be the most interesting is where people mm-hmm. are going to have to try things out for themselves. But by and large, this idea of like what CBD actually does and can do for you as an individual is going to has a steep learning curve. Right now, there's just a lot yeah. of excitement generated. Like you look on Instagram and it's all over the place in terms of like. Where it's showing up in beverages and candies and tinctures, mm-hmm. um, but when and we balms and too, balms, you know? You know? So yeah, it's on every kind of surface,
0: right? You know that we have, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And I think what's going to happen is it's going to take a couple of years for us to see, aside from all the regulatory facets with um, federal regulations is for certain brands to rise uh, to the top and where it's like, okay, this is effective. This is how many milligrams of CBD um, actually takes my headache away, Mm -hmm. you know, acts like an aspirin Mm -hmm. or kind of makes it so that um, I can think more clearly. I don't feel as anxiety ridden or what have you.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what I love about what you're pointing to is I think there's a real opportunity for a brand or brands to emerge to provide a more consistent set of language, labeling, you know, uh, sort of efficacy measures, you know, that the consumer can understand because right now no one really knows it's highly variable from brand to brand. It's, you know, even its efficacy is highly variable from person to person. And so, you know, can a brand come in and not just say, oh, we've got some cool CBD that'll, you know, make you feel relaxed or, you know, support your microbiome, but can they come in and provide, you know, a rubric for just understanding this really interesting ingredient that has been a part of our food history for a really really long time so I think it's going to be interesting to see how you know science is going to have a role research is going to have a role certainly the regulators but you know You know, whatever. You know, the regulators will have their role, but brands are going to clearly be a part of this discussion, and consumers, and together, are going to kind of create um, this kind of way of navigating this category. But for now, I think there's going to be a lot of error, a lot of trial and error, a lot of hit and miss. I think a lot of brands will come and go, but I think ones that can really, you know, speak to it at a really culturally resonant level mm-hmm. um, and yeah. a authentic level, and not just sort of saying CBD, but really tap into the the roots of this, you know, herbal medicine, um, I think we'll have a really, you know, great opportunity.
1: I agree with you. And absolutely. And what I love about this topic too, is that it's merging this notion of, as you said, so eloquently, this idea of we've, we've had this ingredient available to us for forever, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and now it's this idea of like marrying the folklore with what we understand about scientific research. Yes. And yes. that's what I think is so cool, where we can get the the validity behind it and say, like this is how the you know, when you grow it this way, when you extract it this way and process it this way, this is where you get the best benefits from. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it's going to be really interesting over, you know, which is kind of we're watching we're watching the space essentially mm-hmm. to see which brands, um, which formulations um, is there going to be a patent on a certain type of growing and processing method, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the next step. And that's where we're going to see some of the bigger brands like a Starbucks or other uh, CPG brands potentially come in and say, okay, we're using, you know, this brand of, uh, or this patented version of CBD in X product, whether it's confectionaries or beverages um, or a tincture of some sort. But I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity there.
0: And will it be a big player like a Starbucks or will it be, as we've seen, in, you know, in other categories, like something like kombucha, will it be a smaller, you know? know? player that kind of comes in and really brings together the intersection of of science and and kind of folklore medicine together to kind of create this this sort of new category maybe we end on that question (laughs) because believe it or not our time is up we are going to have a series of these short kind of straight to the heart conversations and this one has been a fun one I can't wait for the next one.
1: Me too. Get ready, everybody. We're going to talk about fat on our next Uh-oh. conversation.
0: Chew the fat. Well, until next time, thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed. Please keep the conversation going. As you can see, we love to talk about this. We're a bunch of food nerds around here, um, but also consultants too. Um, and we love to talk about these sort of topics and see what the business opportunities are for, for companies, but also just understand what's happening in the space. So we can't wait to keep the conversation going with you. So hit us up in, in show notes or send us emails. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Yeah. But keep, until
1: next time, keep talking. Uh, we want to hear from you. And also, we're going to have a very meaty section on cannabis and our upcoming health and wellness 2019 report, our syndicated study from quarter one. So uh, come to us and ask us all your questions. And if you'd like to find out more about the section on CBD or the entire health and wellness report, just let us know.
0: Great. Till then. Till then. Bye. Bye.